and welcome back to another episode of the Whole Brother Mission podcast. Today, we are talking about autism in light of Autism Awareness Month. Uh, I was reminded of this because we try to keep track of all the different months and national this day and national that day and national this month, but we can't fit, forget Autism Awareness Month, which is April, and I believe Autism, Autism Awareness Day is April 2nd, so we wanted to take some time to have this conversation. And looking back, I do see oftentimes the faces and advocates as it relates to autism are white women more often than not. Uh, but obviously autism affects everyone. Uh, and we have a focus on black men. And I couldn't think of a better person to speak to than an artist and friend I connected with a couple years ago for a, a, a conversation uh, on culture years ago. But uh, He's an artist, and you'll learn more about his, his music and his newest project, his book. Uh, he saw that it was good, but he also is a father. Uh, and I'll allow him to bring you in on his connection to autism. Uh, I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Shoba Rocka. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well, man. Thank you for having me. Um, this is crazy. Malik, I don't really do a whole lot of conversations and interviews directly about autism. I'm often asked about fatherhood and things like that, but, you know, autism directly. But uh, it's interesting, and I'm glad we're having this conversation, although I'm not an expert, but I'm glad to be with you. Yeah, definitely. And we don't, you know, I'm not pushing you to speak on it as a uh, mental health professional, but more so as a dad, just navigating yeah. through. So for those that don't know, could you bring us in on this story? Uh, when did autism become a part of your life? Well, man, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, Oftentimes when I think about life, I think about how, you know, God may prepare you for things that um, that you may not have the foresight to see or you may not even know uh, may come your way or, you know, whatever obstacles or situations that may come your way in the future. And for me, uh, my journey with autism started actually before I had children. I worked in college. I worked at a, you know, what was known as a mental health and mental retardation center, which is, you know, they've changed the name as mental retardation is no longer, I guess you could say acceptable as the nomenclature for, but it was uh, a, a residence for adults. And most of those adults had um, se severe, I guess you can say behavioral, um, I guess uh, uh, they, their variants of how they managed themselves and when it came to like anger, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, lived on these residents and I worked with them. And one of the things I realized is that a lot of those individuals were on the spectrum. And I didn't really um, know how to decipher, you know, I guess you can say retardation as they claimed it was versus, you know, autism. I just said, I, I just worked there. I tried to have compassion, um, but I also didn't have enough compassion to actually learn and study. And so once I was done working there, I just kind of moved on with life. And then a few years later, got married and uh, I had a daughter. My daughter was neurotypical. And then t uh, a year and a half later, um, we had another son. I mean, we had another child and it was my son, Zakai. And <clears throat> we have a similar story that most families have um, as autism and uh, the spectrum has this way of, I guess, revealing itself somewhere around 18 months. And then um, between there and three years old, you know, uh, families tend to get some sort of diagnosis around three, but he was talk not talking, but he was using words, um, like one word, uh, one word phrases, 
Uh, he would respond to his name. He would look you in the face. But then all of a sudden, around 18 months, he uh, there was these small little idiosyncrasies in these behaviors that he started to exhibit. And slowly but surely, one of the things, like I would see him walk on his toes. And I was like, you know, that's a little strange. I, he's never done that before. And then um, he would start to, you know, he, he, he wouldn't respond to his name as often. And then, uh, you know, he wouldn't look you in the eye anymore. And and, and I just, it just, there were these behaviors and these characteristics that were just concerning me. But then I started to realize, I was like, man, I, I was, I used to see this at the facility I worked at, at the, you know, the, the, the homes that I worked in. And <clears throat> that's when I realized, I was like, you know what, this may be bigger than just uh, regression, if you will, or um, just being... I, you know, a, a typical kid who's ignoring the the calls of their parents. I was like, this may be con something that should be concerning. And I hate to, you know, <laughs> paint the black black people as a monolith, but there's a lot of black, you know, parents out there. When you talk to your, you know, matriarchs and the patriarchs about your kids, they'd be like, oh, don't worry, ain't nothing wrong with that boy. You know what I'm saying? You know, your cousin Junebug didn't start talking to he was seven. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and so. <laughs> And you get these, and after a while, you're like, you know what? You know, they're right. You know, Jumbo, he's he a smart brother now, but you know, he probably didn't start talking until he was around seven. Well, anyway, it, it, when three hit, we realized, no, nah, this this is not cousin Jumbo. This is not just somebody with a speech impediment. This is uh, this seems to be a little more serious. And so, we uh, were really afraid. We ended end up meeting a family who went through a similar situation, but like four years earlier than us. And they really encouraged us to get a diagnosis. They gave, they, they sent us to a particular doctor here in Atlanta. And we did it. And I think by that time, we were, I think we were at peace with whatever the decision was because we knew that our son needed attention and we wanted to do it sooner than later. And so when he was around three years old, we you know got a pretty much a confirmation through a series of assessments that he was on the autism spectrum. And that's, you know, that forever changed our lives. And we began to realize like our life is not going to be what we thought it would be. You know, we had this neurotypical daughter who, you know, exhibited all the behaviors and actions and that, you know, most parents expect in their children. And then you have this other child who is different and you're trying to figure out how do I balance this? You know, I obviously don't love them differently, but I also have to parent differently now. Like I can't parent the same way. And I, that's obvious with any children, but there's, there's a there's a drastic switch and pivot when you realize like my my son may not live on his own or that he may not play a particular uh, a sport in high school or he may not go to prom or he may not be able to live independently in a way that you know we did or our daughter will, will most likely be able to do. So we started to prep ourselves for a different life and. I'll just stop there because I know you probably got a lot of a lot of different questions. But I think that was when, you know, because between 18 months and three, it was really tough. You know, um, my wife was blaming herself um, and I was blaming myself for letting my wife blame herself. And I think there's great tension that happens in marriages. And, you know, we can talk about this more later, but there are great tensions that happen in marriages where um, there is some sort of. I guess you could say neuro, neuro neurology disorder or or, uh, or um, some sort of uh, special need in the household because it, it wears on you as a as a couple and you have to begin to determine what 
do we value most about you know our relationship and how are we going to survive and serve one another in order to make this uh this marriage stick not just for ourselves because yes we need to love ourselves in order to be successful in order to to to, to thrive but we also want to you know be successful and live a long time for our for our kids so i'll stop there <laughs> no cuz i can talk forever yeah <laughs> Uh, so yeah, there's a lot, a lot there. I thank you for sharing what you have shared. So I want to catch the audience up on a few things. So I'm in the know to a certain extent, but the average person might not be. So first you use a term neurotypical to describe your daughter. Mm -hmm. Let the audience understand what you mean by that. Yeah. So, I mean, autism in itself, and once again, I'm not an expert, but you know, is a, um, <clears throat> is a serious development disorder. So it impairs interaction, you know, cognitive uh, 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 engagement and oftentimes, and this is why it's, you know, it's autism spectrum. So there are some people who interact better, who communicate better. They use full sentences. They know how to communicate. They can actually function in society independently. And there are some people who can't do any of those things. They can't communicate. They use speaking, um, devices. Um, um, some of them need even like, you know, different assistances when it comes to, uh, how they communicate. And so usually when people talk about autism, they talk about autism in the spectrum, but when you talk about people who are, you know, who don't, who, who don't have autism, you, it, you say neurotypical folks who normally say normal children. Um, so the way that you, you, you communicate somebody who's normal without, I guess you could say creating triggers or, or yeah, is by saying neurotypical. Um, so, uh, I've I've learned how to change my language, even as a parent, because there's times when I say things about my kids that I'm like, oh, I don't want that label on them. I don't want them to feel or other families to feel that this is how I view them. Absolutely. Like, yeah. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned the whole Junebug situation. And I, I definitely understand that, you know, we uh, at the whole brother mission deal with the stigma of mental health in the black community quite a bit. And uh, there is a level of, um, I think, naivete or uh, naiveness, whichever works, uh, as it relates to when we see certain things, a lot of times they are kind of downplayed. Like, that's just how they are. Uh, you know, they've always been different. Some in church may say touched. You know, we have all these different right, things right, right. that we do that, touch, that tap around uh, people that may be interacting in a different way uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. haven't historically leaned into uh assessments and diagnosis within reason uh we, right. you know, we have seen uh there be an actual stigma as it relates to that um so i get the hesitation but i did want to speak to the idea of wrestling with this as a father because even in dealing with uh uh, clients who may have a child or son specifically a father who may have a son who is depressed or bipolar or any other type of label that is typically seen as a negative or a detractor what is seen quite a bit is kind of a a process or spectrum of acceptance hmm. and eventually we get there but it's a it's a, a bumpy road getting there yeah. it typically starts with a level of avoidance or uh, avoidance or denial. So for you, yeah. 
as you were observing what you observed and then you got to the point of actually seeking out a professional for a diagnosis, did you have to wrestle through that at all? Absolutely. I think one of the things, I think a lot of people who may seek counseling now, people who recognize that they need professional help, they get there because they're humble. And uh, that diagnosis was a humbling process for me because when I got married, I married a beautiful woman and I assumed that we would have this storybook life and we would have these neurotypical children and everything would be great. Um, but then when you, when you don't have those things, if I can get religious, it humbles you and you, you realize that as, as great as I think I am, I have to trust in the Lord. I have to begin to realize that um, I cannot operate and exist within my own strength. And I was very humbled. And, uh, and in that process, it made me believe in things that I probably didn't once believe. Um, and there's, you know, there are other, I guess you, you, you can say uh, factors and variables on why it tends to be that the, the families of June bugs are like, hey, you know what? That boy gonna be all right because historically black people have been, you know, um, demoralized. What'd you say? Oh, I said overcome. I, th I thought you were gonna say how we just get through any and everything somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so in a sense, that's, yeah, absolutely. But I was gonna say how, you know, the medical field has, you know, experimented on us. It hasn't been, yeah. it hasn't been the best for black people. Um, and so, and so therefore there's a lot of doubt. And then there, you know, the, the, the stigma of weakness um, runs rampant within not just male culture, but especially black male culture. And so these things are, are, are signifiers of weakness. And to your point, which I think is great, we are kind of like overcomers and we just, we think we can just pray everything away. And, and I do wish I had the faith to believe that I could just hit my knees and pray, but the Lord gives me um, wisdom when I get up from that prayer to seek help because he's gifted people and with resources and the skill of hand to help us uh, thrive and persevere through these tough issues and tough times. Um, now, uh, for me and my my family, yeah, like it, it it hit us like a, <laughs> it is like a truck. So I, I realized like if I want my kids to succeed, if I want this family to succeed, I'm going to have to reach outside of my own capacity in order to in order to to find a way to to create not solutions but to create great opportunities of flourishing not just for my family but for my kids because i don't know anything about autism and so to walk around thinking that we'll just solve it through osmosis and just um by default is is, is very callous and to you know hit you with something else uh we had the two children and my wife and i were pretty confident that we weren't going to have any more children and uh and you know five years later long story short we decided to have one more child and we had our second boy and he ended up having autism as well and so now you're now we're in a place where we're like you know one like damn lord like what's up like what do we do <laughs> but then it's also in a place like this may sound ridiculous but you know we, we we're in this position and he doesn't put more on you than you can bear and so it's like well he knows the love that i have for my son he knows the love that i have for my daughter and if 
there, there's anybody who's who's going to have these children and try to make the best of the situation that they live in and love these kids. Um, I think my wife and I are those people. And so I didn't see it as a punishment. Um, I saw it as an opportunity to grow, to love and to be a service, not only to these, these children, but to be a service to the world because um, I became a, someone who would who was an accidental advocate in a way. And that accidental advocacy turned into very intentional advocacy. Right. Yeah. And I, I get the idea of, like you said, damn Lord, you know, completely understand right. that. You know, I don't have children of my own, but in several aspects of life where the hits just keep coming and it's right. like, yo, you know, what's, what's going on here? So I can relate in that regard, but I also understand it has its nuances too. I'm curious, uh, how has your uh and you you said this that you so you have three children one daughter two sons and both sons have been diagnosed with autism uh what are their ages currently uh my oldest daughter is 16 my oldest son is 14 about to be 15 and then my youngest son is eight okay so you're navigating through uh parenting now with this in mind and you mentioned earlier that it has to do with development and uh, for those that don't know, uh, I think you did mention this, autism is on a spectrum. So there are more, I guess, severe cases and there are less severe cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more severe cases may put you in a position where that person may need assistance with day-to-day life. Uh, yeah. Whereas less uh, severe cases, a person may be able to live on their, on their own. So... Yeah. Uh, I know that that takes time to understand the severity of the case as the person's developing into uh, into adulthood. Uh, where are you at in that process and navigating through uh, your involvement and your son's lives moving forward? Yeah, I think, you know, as I kind of alluded to earlier, I think we're at a place where we recognize that our lives are, are not going to be the lives that um, that fit this narrative of meat happy marriage, have children, send children off to college, they become adults, they get married, have grandkids, and you're empty nesters, and you just go vacation with, um, with you know, your, your three kids and their and their children and your grandparents, and you just live um, happily ever after. It's, it's a different narrative that we've, that we're accepting. And in that narrative, um, it takes a lot of dying to yourself. It takes a lot of understanding that there's a potential that my kids may um, live on their own independently. I, you know, I, I hate to say I doubt it because I don't want to be somebody who, who who lacks faith, but I'm also, I don't know, I'm optimistic that there may be um, opportunities. But then there's this other part of me that's like, I don't even know if I would want them necessarily to live independently um, because I think community is a very healthy thing and they're they bring so much joy to my wife and I and our family. My grandmother, who is 95 today, actually, um, loves my son. She, like he is her favorite. And so um, these individuals bring about so much joy. They, I learned so much from them. It's every day when there's, you know, every week or month when there's small victories, it just does something for my heart. Uh, and so 
Um, I and my wife have reconciled with the reality that they may live with us for the rest of our lives. And the hope is that if we pass away before they do, is that, is there someone who will take care of them? So I'm trying to make all the money possible, nice insurance plans. Um, so when we pass away that, you know, they'll be taken care of and, and loved on by family members and friends. And so, um, yeah, man, we, we, you know, we're, we're fortunate in the sense that our kids, do exhibit a lot of independence. Um, you know, as they as they're getting older, our youngest son actually probably has more independence, has more cognitive awareness, maybe than and here's interesting. My younger my youngest son has probably more um social engagement, cognitive awareness than my, my older son, but my older son has better speech and uh, language communication than my younger son. And so there's these interesting dynamics that you know that that come into play. But for the most part, like my oldest son, you know, if he had a credit card, he would buy everything on Amazon. So he knows how to operate the internet. <laughs> he knows how to, you know, cook to some degree. Um, and my young son is just like, just he's he's like a professional house. Like he makes sure the house is clean. He's he, he cleans behind. He's just a, a a a wonder. He's like he's a wonderful kid in the sense that he he's clean. He loves to like help his brother out, even though he's older than him with making sure his backpack is packed. So it's it's a beautiful thing, but you know, they're, they're just different. And uh, we've come to accept that. I've also come to uh, this space where not be, cause I used to be ashamed to take them out in public. I used to be ashamed to even get them haircuts, to take them in a store. And uh, now one of the things I love doing, I don't do it as, as often as, you know, probably people want me to, but I showcase their life on my social media at, at times. Uh, most, mostly my stories, because I just want people to see what it looks like for a father, especially a black father, to in, engage with his autistic kids, with his kids who have autism. So, um, yeah, man, it's, it's, it, and if in a lot of ways, normalize their lives, you know what I mean? And so I partner with a lot of organizations that are trying to do the same thing. Yeah. So. I'd like you to speak to this from more of a, uh, a husband perspective now. Yeah. Uh, because I know that there are a lot of, of guys listening that may be Christian or aren't Christian, but in a general sense, have this idea of when I get married one day, it's just going to be uh, intimacy nonstop. And just this, you know, they, they have this uh, a romanticized right. view that doesn't typically take into account the difficulties that come with marriage that may even hinder the intimacy. Yeah. Uh, so oh, obviously absolutely. when facing uh, a difficult situation, like uh, navigating through a diagnosis, like with your children, you even mentioned earlier that it, it affected your relationship with your wife. So mm -hmm. yes, there is that aspect of marriage, but could you provide some balance for those that may not realize uh, the difficulties, including this, that may come with partnering with someone. Yeah, man, I think um, all mature relationships have to understand that um, the relationship you're in with a person is going to change. It, it evolves and maturity teaches you how to evolve with that person or in the circumstance. Most marriages and relationships fall apart because, um, you know, people who loved one another enter into a new season and they don't know how to how to evolve or change with the season. And my wife and I had a wonderful marriage going into her second pregnancy. Um, 
it was great after you know for, for all intents it was it was great i mean you know uh there we were young trying to figure out careers around that time um and you know there's the normal obstacles that you face as a young man and a young woman but then when you have a son who's you know on the autism spectrum that changes so much because now you realize like my wife is the type of woman who and she wouldn't be you know upset with me sharing this um she worries a lot and when there's things that she can't control i think that sends her to a place of of you know dis discomfort i won't say depression but it sends her to a place that is not healthy and if you know relationships when your spouse or the person you love is in a dark place then that affects you and of course it's hard to have very intimate uh, uh, moments with your wife when their mind or the individual's the spouse's mind is elsewhere and so there were these moments where i realized i'm not excited i'm not gonna even lie to you it's like man i want to have sex right now <laughs> but i also realized that my wife is stressing out about her son and so um um i'm like we can stress out together while we have sex but you know it's all good if that's not what you want to do then i'll figure out how to show some compassion in this moment <laughs> yeah but yeah. um but the reality is is that you have to learn how to die to yourself every day i mean and love this person sacrificially in a way that is going to help them not just so that you can get your uh the benefits that you want at the other end but it helps them become a better more whole person as in to kind of give a shout out to the podcast and so for us there were a couple of things that we needed to do one we we went to we started going to a lot of conferences we started to get, get do a lot of uh you know married groups we started to make sure we would friend people who were in the same journey with us and having those people around us attending those events reading that literature like it's it's literally i think it, it saved us in a lot of way because we would have conversations with these couples and they were like oh that's oh that's that's normal baby don't don't worry that's you guys ain't crazy yeah sometimes you want to choke the child and you know don't choke the child because you, you don't want to go to jail but you know say love the child our son our oldest son used to have these moments where he would literally flip out and he would just throw himself against walls he would bang, bang his head up against walls um and i'm sitting there concerned i'm like man the police gonna come because he's gonna go to school with this big knot on his head they gonna think i'm knocking him upside his head and i just don't know what to do um got connected with an organization culture city we told them like hey man this is what's happening with our child we don't know what to do they said hey we got a therapist uh and a uh a behavior a behavior therapist who is one of the most forward leading individuals in this field we're going to set you up for some time with her she gave us tips and resources on how to de-escalate our son um he also would never sleep in his own bed he would always sleep in the bed with us that you know obviously changes the intimacy in a relationship and so she helped us like because we were like well, look we need help she helped us get to a place where not only he would eventually sleep in his bed and stay in his bed but also when he we knew he was throwing fits it's usually a communication issue he doesn't know how to communicate on the level um like we do about our frustrations and so he's just upset and so we learned how to communicate more clearly with him talk him down and then if we had to restrain him in a way that wouldn't cause more physical harm to him or anybody else and man the lord changed this young boy literally like overnight like one day he went from this this child who was i was afraid would times try to open like grab the steering wheel just do 
interesting things to a kid who just doesn't stop smiling now. Like he is the most joyful little boy I know. And I'm just, or teenager, he ain't a little boy no more. He almost as tall as me, Joker. But uh, it's just amazing like to, to, to see the growth. And that doesn't happen unless you try to figure out how to get help. You know what I mean? And I think help leads to health. You know what I mean? And so for me, we were like, uh, we in order for us to have sanity, in order for me to feel like um, I want to even stick in and stay in this house and stay in this relationship, we got to figure out how to how to, to reach outside our own resources, our own capacity to figure out how we can get some help. And the conferences, the organizations, the families, and uh, the the medical profession really helped us out. Uh, the other last thing I'll say is we have friends who were, I guess you can say. They would hunt and scour the web and city for resources that weren't ever present in our face. And oftentimes there are so many resources out there, but you just got to seek them out. You got to find them, different camps, different uh, just services that whether it be local or private or public services that will help your kids that will. And that's how we found actually the school that our kids attend right now. And they've been there for our oldest son has been there for about seven, maybe close to seven years now. So and it's a school that specializes in uh, teaching kids who are on the spectrum and uh, kids with other um, uh, special needs. I'm Olivia Morgan, intake coordinator here at the Whole Brother Mission. I'm here to pass on a little information about how you can join us in helping men in need seek licensed professional counselors nationwide. Number one, ask. Ask if your employer participates in matching donations. Many employers will match your gift to a nonprofit. We are a 501c3, so all gifts are tax deductible. Number two, pass. Pass this video as well as our website onto others so that they are aware of our services and our need of support. And number three, give. If you're able to, please consider giving. The proceeds remove barriers for men seeing a culturally competent mental health professional and they support our upcoming HBCU book tour. Thank you for your time. Yeah. So I understand that you're, once again, speaking about this not as, hey, I'm a professional, but more so I'm a father and a husband yeah. just navigating through it. And here's what I've learned along the way. So there uh, may be people listening who, well, I know oftentimes there are people who are wondering about yeah. uh if there may be a diagnosis that has been undiagnosed as it relates to a family member, whether it be a child, a sibling, or a friend. And oftentimes it's so hard for people to have that conversation, even though they're observing things. Um, yeah. So uh, just from your experience, what have you found uh, to be helpful? What would you pass on to people who are wondering uh, in a variety of relationship dynamics how do you open up a conversation uh, where you have observed some things that are concerning? How do you open up that conversation about potentially seeing a professional for an yeah. investment? It's, it's, very, it's a very difficult conversation because it's a very private and intimate thing. Um, anytime you're invading someone's private life um, and giving them, you know, nobody, first of all, your kids are throwing a fit at a barbecue, at a picnic. Don't nobody want to hear your opinion on how I should re rear my children. Um, even though, once again, I'll, it was a harsh generalization, even though black 
parents or, or black adults are notorious for that, especially the you know baby boomer generation. Like, babe, I'll never forget walking through a, I think it was a Kroger, and my son was throwing a fit. And this was back when, uh, before he kind of had his, his, his shift, he was throwing a fit because I wouldn't purchase him something. And this black woman, well, older black woman just walked up to me. Oh, don't worry, baby. Let me spend a couple of days with him. I'll get him right. And I'm sitting there looking at her. I'm looking at her like, ma'am, you have no clue. You have no clue what you're talking about. And I didn't even say anything to her. Um, and the only reason why I didn't cuss her out is because they're, they're <laughs> having the respect for my mates. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, you know, so I just looked at her and I just kind of, you know, grabbed my son and we made our way outside. The reality is, is that we do need those conversations, but it's how you have those conversations. I'll tell you another story. Uh, around the same time, my, my son, I'm taking him to the barbershop and I knew during this time, I got about a good hour window before my son is, is throwing a fit. And so I would strategically call the barber and I would say, hey, bro, you know, I'm on my way. When I get in the, the <laughs> I get in the shop, he needs to be in that chair and we need to be ready to go with an hour. He's oh, no, I got you. I got you. We get there. He, we are about to be next in line. And all of a sudden, this pretty girl walks in and she needs some like eyebrows done or something. And he, you know, he's trying to get this attention of this young lady or trying to holler. So he's like, hey, brother, I'm going to get her real, 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 real quick. It's going to be real quick. And, uh, you know, I was like, I was like, bro, you told me. He's like, man, it's going to be real quick. So he, she sits in the chair. She uh, gets done. So my son gets in, in the chair. And he sits down halfway, literally halfway through the cut. He just he's not having it no more. And I knew it was happening because he was feeling antsy as soon as he sat in the chair. And I had to just pull him out the chair and just take him home because I was like, this is not beneficial for him. This is not beneficial for me. The barber, is he's disinterested. There's about 20 people in this barbershop, maybe less, who are just looking at us like, you know, why is this young man? Why can't he get his son under control? And I remember as I was walking out the, the, the shop, this white woman who was in the shop, which I always thought was a little interesting because it was like, what's this white woman doing in here? Um, she, she follows me outside and she, she she touches my shoulder and she says, sir, I don't know you, um, but I'm here to tell you that it's going to be all right. And tears start coming out of my eyes because I just, I needed that at that moment. She said, and it was one of those situations it was like, look, I have a son, or she, I don't know if she said she had a son, but she had a relative, uh, like a nephew or something on the autism spectrum. And she says, I understand. And uh, and it may be tough, but it, it, it'll be all right. And that was all I needed for me to just bring a peace. And tears are coming down my eyes. My son's still throwing a fit. And uh, it crazy enough, we drove home. <laughs> I finished the haircut, bought some clippers, finished the haircut. And that's when I reached out to the organization Culture City. Cause this gentleman had been reaching out to me for about a couple a uh, couple months because i had wrote a song with propaganda talking about my struggle with raising a, a son on the autism spectrum and uh, i ignored his i ignored his his text and i mean not his text but his, his direct messages because i was like i don't really know what you what i can do for you sir but at that moment i was humble and i knew i needed help and so i reached out to him i said look i don't know what you do what your organization is but I just had an experience that made me realize I need help. And so when you have advocates, accidental advocates, as I like to say, like that woman who walked out of the barbershop, who who gives you a sense of peace and who can speak. She could have told me whatever. She could have said, look, here's this number. You probably should go blah, blah, blah. 
And so now when I see families, I know I, I took a long road to this answer. I'm just realizing that <laughs> your boy liked to talk. So um, I um, what I like to do is um, I like to just ask questions. I just like to ask questions like, man, like, how are you doing? What is, you know, what is it like, you know, um, what are some of the behaviors that you have seen? Um, how can I help and serve you? How is it, how is it affecting your, your marriage? Um, and then when I feel like there's some equity built there, I was like, man, do you mind if I give you um, some resources that I think may be helpful? Um, because there are a lot of people who don't find out they, they're on the spectrum until they're like in their teens or into their adulthood, adulthood. And I do think that serves as a disadvantage because the earlier you get a diagnosis, the earlier you begin to give help and assistance to the, to the child. Um, the better for them to be acclimated into society, understanding who they are and why they process information and sense it's in sound and different things a, a different way than other kids. Um, why every time the teacher, um, you know, plays something on the projector, like they cover their ears, it's just, I don't know, it's just different things that they respond to. Um, when football game, like I took my son to a basketball game, the Atlanta Hawks game. And he just couldn't handle it because it was sensory overload. And I realized it was like, oh, man, the way he's he's intaking information is overloading his system. You know what I mean? He, he doesn't know how to respond to these lights flashing, the music blaring, all these people shouting and cheering every now and then. Like, he was just like, this is overwhelming for me. And I'm just like, this is heaven. Like, you know what I'm saying? Let's get it. You know what I'm saying? It ain't loud enough. He, he, his, and so Culture City, another the same organization, realize that there are a lot of families who are dealing with this. And so how do we create sensory inclusion spaces? So when your child or your loved one is having um, a moment where it's sensory overload, there are spaces in these museums, zoos, arenas, uh, restaurants that will be able to uh, serve and cater to the, to the individual. So whether it be giving them headphones, whether it be giving them a, a, a quiet space for them to deescalate or to calm down. And it's just, it's just things like that. And so the more you can better understand um, the, I don't even know how I got, but anyway, the end of the matter is this. Um, it's about how you approach and how you talk, build equity, um, come with compassion, have, understand that there's probably some deep, deep, deep insecurity as a parent with those individuals because they're trying to, because the, their, their children's diagnosis in some ways is, is a haunting on them. And it took my wife many, many years to get over the haunting of the diagnosis being her fault because the, her, the lies she began to believe, like I am an inadequate individual. And so therefore I did something wrong. And not only did I have to tell her one, well, not just me, but a community of people of uh, all of us had to communicate like, no, it's not your fault. You're not inadequate. But not only are you not inadequate, our children aren't inadequate. Like our children are special whole people who just operate differently in our society. And they and it's going to take us to shift and pivot on how we live going forward. But there's nothing insufficient about any of us. So. The way you, you answered that question sparked one more additional question that I wasn't intending to ask, but as an artist, uh, when you got the first diagnosis and then that process uh, thereafter, how did that affect your creativity and artistry? Hmm. 
I think I, I the the one thing that I can think it did is it made me write more honest songs. Um, I realized that um, escapism and fantasy is something our world has mastered. We have virtual reality. We have games. We love social media. We can create a veneer about our lives. Everything we engage in <laughs> from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep is removing us from reality. And uh, I think some of that is good. You know what I mean? It's good to watch, you know, Iron Man fly through the sky. It's good to, you know, cheer on Falcon and the Winter Soldier as he becomes the new Captain America. Like these things are healthy because I believe in the ability of stories to shape and change culture. But there's also these moments where we need to uh, tell the truth about society and tell the truth about the world we live in. And for me, I said, the Lord has blessed me with these wonderful experiences with my kids, this wonderful experience of uh, and mar being married to this woman with children on the spectrum. And so I want to talk about this because I've never heard anybody talk about this, especially in hip hop. And so when Prop asked me to write a song, I was like, yo, let's do it. And that kind of just sparked this thing in me that I, I can I can be a voice that encourages people to bring this conversation out of the shadows. And so I would say that's probably how it uh how it catalyzed some some ideas and some movement in me, not to just talk about the fantastic, not to just exist in um the, the a world that is pleasing in my imagination, but to talk about the the Eden that we want to be in, but also talk about the Garden of Gethsemane where there's pain, but there's hope in that pain. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I do uh, just being in this space so often, I have to say that uh, most black fathers I come across uh, and it not, isn't necessarily autism. It ends up being other, other things that more are considered mental illness rather than a developmental delay. Mm -hmm. uh, black fathers of a certain generation, uh, typically older than yourself, they're kind of stuck on ain't nothing wrong with my boy. You know, they're just stuck there and it is so hard to get them <laughs> out of that space uh, to explore other possibilities. So, one, I appreciate the fact that you've been highlighting this in your socials and in other platforms. And I would just ask you and encourage you uh, to continue to. And if you have the, the means to do so and the time and uh, space to do so with all the things that are on your plate, more is needed. Uh, because the mental health space in many cases is dominated by a certain yeah. demographic and profile. So yeah. uh, that w in addition to your experience, that's why I wanted to speak with you, because we need more uh, black men in a variety of uh, spaces of life to speak about it. Uh, Ninety percent of the clients that we receive are black men between the ages of 19 and 23, hmm. uh, which to me points to generationally as you get younger amongst black men you get more open to mental health services, assessments, and the conversation. But the mm -hmm. further back you go, the more hesitancy you see. So I do think people like yourself are well positioned to kind of uh, show, hey, it's cool to lean into this conversation and you can work through this just like you work through any other uh, difficulty in life. 
Man, I, first of all, let me say thank you for having me and thank you for that encouragement. I will say there's a there's a struggle that I have with um, using my my boys sometimes as a mean as a as a as a means for likes and retweets and mm-hmm. because I, I I see like when I post stuff about my boys, it gets a lot of traction, and I know who I am. <laughs> I do not trust myself. Uh, and I've seen other people with platforms and I, I feel like sometimes they're inauthentic. It's like, yeah, the, it started off as a wonderful cause, but now they become that thing and they have to they have to continue to be that thing. And I don't want to get to a place where I am doing it in order to sustain a platform. I, I want it to be authentic. And so I sh- I'm saying all this say like, I, I want to be, but I also struggle with it. You know what I'm saying? I just struggle with um, yeah, with it sometimes. So that's why I don't post as much. But um, I, I've also seen, like when I do, the messages that come through, the encouragement, and not just from black men, from white women, from white men. And they're always just like, thank you, thank you, thank you. And, and it's just, that's intoxicating to me. You know what I'm saying? It's like because you feel like you're doing good, like you're legitimately doing some good because you're healing some brokenness there somehow. Like somehow there's some there's some some uh, there's a a malignant situation that's festering within their social sensibilities. And to be able to remove that tumor in a way is is a beautiful thing. But it also can be a thing where I, I begin to prostitute it, if you will. And I don't I don't want to do that. And so um, I am consistently trying to work that balance of what is it? What does it look like for me to to be a a autism dad while at the same time? um, Not using it as an opportunity for my own benefit and and platforming. So but I will say thank you, man, because just to hear that stuff is encouraging. Uh, The last story before I, I, you know. I was at a, I was at a, a, I took my kids to a, a autism camp, and uh, there were about five or six families. I, I'm pretty sure all the families, maybe save one, um, were both, uh, you know, mother and father were present, and, um, but at the end, I'm so I'm there. I'm like, we we camping, like they have us out in nature, so there's no phones, there's no electricity. Like you are literally in nature. You're sleeping in these tents. When it gets dark, you shut it down. Ain't nothing to do but talk to you, the person two feet in front of you because you can't see four feet behind you. You know what I'm saying? Like or past you. And so uh, it's nature, nature. And so we're involved. We're getting in. It's about three days. And I remember at the end of the three days, literally almost every counselor, camp counselor and staff member came up to me and said, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Because most fathers who come do not even engage. Like they're just here, they stay in their tents, they just are like mad about it. But thank you for actually like participating and having fun. And it was it was mind-blowing to me because I'm like, why am I getting praised for something I should be doing? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so you you have these moments like that where it's like people need to see that. People need to see this black man love his family, be all on socials, be all over the place, just celebrating life and his kids. 
but it's also dangerous because I just know the type of person I am because I love praise. So that's what I'll end, Malik. I'm going to shut up. <laughs> no, nah, man, you know, that's that's real, right? There's so many people that would have, uh, in your position, if they recognized that about themselves, they would have just kept that to themselves and just said, thank you for saying that and moved on to the next question. So I mm-hmm. appreciate you even being transparent and that, that reality about yourself because that that shows a level of self-reflection that also, once again, we need to have. Like, this is who I yeah. am. But I will say, once again, not to be selfish, I think the balance... <laughs> the balance hey, I'm, I'm listening. <laughs> the balance is, okay, it's really ultimately the why. And uh, right, 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 right. I think I have wrestled with this too in that uh, all of our experiences have purpose. Uh that's that's on one one end of the spectrum and on the other end of the spectrum is uh we need to sustain whatever lifestyle we have Mm. Uh, and if um using my experiences for positive purposes happens to come with additional means then so be it i'm all for it bro yeah i hear you if it happens you know but once again the why the why was to raise awareness Mm. right yeah absolutely so you know, that's where I'm at on it. But uh, once again, as I mentioned, multiple things on your plate. I, I want to mention this. Your book, He Saw That It Was Good, is coming out May 18th. I got that right? Yes, you did. Okay. So please tell us uh, where you're going with this, because I, once again, uh, I'll make it clear. This isn't necessarily tied to our conversation. No, uh, no. This is a whole different ball game. So help us understand. Yeah. Uh, first book, where are you going with it? Yeah, it's funny because and when people ask me what this book's about, it depends on who I'm talking to because I can I can say, yeah, it's a book about justice. And then I'm talking to somebody else like, no, it's a book about work and faith. Somebody say, oh, what is the book about? So it's a book about creativity. <laughs> and somebody, oh, what is it? It's a book about history, black history and movements. It's really a book about many things. But the, the theme is this idea of good. Like, how do we how do we see the work that we did, the work that we've done, the work that we do and the work that we will do, how do we use our stories? How do we use our work and our advocacy for good? And oftentimes, sometimes we think we're doing good when we're actually doing you know, damage. And so the book is basically about challenging us to see our lives as creatives in the sense that we're always creating, we're always making things no matter who you are. If you're an artist, an educator, um, an engineer, a podcaster, you're, you're communicating something that is shaping identity. And is that good? Is it harmful? Uh, is it developing the whole person? Um, and um, if you are doing damage, how do you turn and, and, and repair the damage that you've done? And so I use a lot of history to one, celebrate or chastise ideas or movements. And um, uh, at the end, and I and I also shift ideas. So I start off with stories, and I go to work, and then I go to justice, and then I go to kind of like differences in in diversity. Then I go to how we view kind of like evil and wickedness, and then kind of move to like an assessment. Here are some things that you can do in order to evaluate yourself on a daily basis. So it's amusing, if you will, of different using different antidotes to really castigate and evaluate what good is. Yeah. Okay. I think that uh, as someone who's known you for a while, 
uh, I think that is the perfect uh, way to step into the, the writing realm and have authenticity uh, because mm. they always say you want your book to sound like you. Yeah. And me having heard you speak about a variety of concepts, I know that uh, you think deeply about things and you have to be a good listener um, and intentional about understanding the depth of certain concepts. So I know that that, as you explained it, fits with how I know you to speak and articulate things. So I, I, I'm tracking with you. Thank you, brother. Uh, Thank you very much. That made me feel a little com more confident about this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I think, yeah, as someone who's followed you, I I'm with you on that. Uh, but uh, once again, I, I thank you for joining me. Uh, any closing words you'd like to add for those that uh, who may not be familiar with you, who are leaning yeah. into the autism conversation or the book or the music, anything else you want to want to throw out there as we close? Yeah, I mean, I have a couple songs um, that talk about my experience with autism. You can search Show Baraka, but the two songs uh, that, you know, really dive deep into it. One is I Ain't Got an Answer. The other so that's featuring propaganda or it's propaganda song featuring me better yet. And then there's a song called Words, uh, 2006. And that's on my album, The Narrative. Um, um, so that kind of talks in depth about my experience with having kids on the spectrum. But if I can leave you with a resource, I've mentioned them a couple of times. I would love to say Culture City and spelled with a K, not a C, but the culture is spelled with a K, not a C. CultureCity.org um, does some amazing work. They are based in Birmingham, but they do international, I mean, they do national work. And so um, if you need help and understanding on what autism is, how to get diagnoses, how to seek help, they have all those resources on their website. And I think they're wonderful people doing some wonderful things for families. They just um, came alongside a family in Virginia, the Russian family, who the son, Matthew, was in prison because he got in a car accident and they felt like he was in wrongly prisoned. Um, because of the car accident and he's on the spectrum and he wasn't allowed certain uh, services and in knowing his diagnosis and knowing that he was he was on the spectrum they should have maybe handled him in the case differently and so there was a uh, a lot of people that came alongside and rallied to bring justice for him and get him out of prison and get him a fair kind of like you know hearing and so culture city was one of the folks that was involved in that so they're just doing some good work and I'm trying to be one of those individuals who are doing good work as well or who is doing good work as well. And, uh, and God bless it, bro. Well, thank you for joining us show Baraka. Uh, we appreciate your contributions. My name is Malik blade and this is me signing off for another episode of the whole brother mission podcast.